0: This is RJ Rushdoony, Easy Chair number 28, September 29, 1982. I have something special planned for today, but before we go on to that, I am going to take just a minute or two to comment on something related to our last session together. I talked about the farm question at that time. And a few days later, the October Harper's Magazine came out, I would say a particularly bad issue, and one article with an editorial title above it, Hogwash, is by Stephen Chapman, and it is a debunking of the supposed farm problem, as they see it. The title is The Farmer on the Dole. And the subtitle, we're spending billions to save a way of life that isn't in danger and wouldn't be worth saving if it were. Chapman is a syndicated columnist for the Chicago Tribune. Now, Chapman's point of view is a very common one, and I've seen this kind of presentation again and again. But the point he makes, very briefly, is this, that the farmers are not in trouble, which is a surprise to the banks because they're carrying a lot of paper of a very high percentage of farms in trouble. But Chapman says, and I quote, the average income of commercial farmers, those who actually do it for a living, is an impressive 34000 And the typical farmer, even counting the hobbyists, has even greater wealth than income largely because he owns, on average, 400 acres of land. That and other assets bring his family's net worth to about 300,000, approximately twice the average for other American households. Unquote. Now, those figures sound very impressive, but, of course, what he doesn't go into is that, assuming his figure, 34,000, is correct, it's a meaningless figure because if you make 34000 in town with only the cost of a car and your house, 34000 will do very nicely. But if you're making it on a farm and you're paying considerable taxes on that farm and you have to maintain equipment that is very costly and replace it, equipment that will run from fifty to a hundred and fifty thousand dollars you are in trouble. And the problem with farmers today is they have to have very high priced equipment and they are increasingly unable to make enough equipment to buy uh to make enough money to buy new equipment. This is true of other areas of life as well, by the way. For example the uh, men with big cats who do on-site work to prepare a site for construction. I know one man engaged in such work, and he knows that his days are numbered. He's patching up his equipment, but he said, it would take me a couple of hundred thousand dollars to replace the most elementary equipment. And he said, I make barely enough to get by. Well, The farmer has this problem on a big scale. He has to have a pickup or a truck. He has to have tractors. He has to have various harvesting machines, all kinds of highly technical, very costly equipment. And this is what has forced farmers who do did not have, ten years ago, any debt into the banks to make loans, to mortgage their farms, and now to lose them. So, uh, just at that one point, Chapman's figures are absurd. Then he goes on uh, to a number of other things. He says that the farmers are getting great protection because under pressure from farmers who persisted in complaining about their onerous tax burdens. Congress virtually eliminated the estate tax by creating a flat $600,000 exemption effective in 1985, Well, that again is nonsense. A $600,000 exemption on a farm is not much. Here in California, in the San Joaquin Valley, for example, farmland is selling for about 15,000 an acre. If you have 100 acres, a family-sized farm, you have a million and a half dollars there in land value. And then your equipment and your uh house and so on can push that up considerably. And yet you may be doing well to make 20,000 a year or 30,000 a year in some cases i know it's at the lower extreme because you don't make it every year you can lose your crops you can be wiped out totally one year by bad weather so if that land is worth that now what will it be worth with skyrocketing inflation in 1985 This is why estate and inheritance taxes are wiping out a lot of farms. Then one more data. He says farmers in most of the West get water from federal water projects at absurdly low rates. Well, quite a few articles have been written about that. What Chapman and these people fail to realize is that these farmers in the West first developed in the form of co-ops, these water districts. With mules and horses, they dug the ditches. They built the original dams. Since then, the federal government has taken these over, has expanded them, and now we are told the cost of water is far above what the farmers are paying for it. Well, let's consider some things. Anytime the federal government provides you with something, you can never keep up with the cost of it because it is not a for-profit thing. There is a vast bureaucracy and the cost is always skyrocketing. Second, it is true that as compared to the cities, the farmers are getting cheap water. This is a point that, for example, in California, the city papers make over and over again. But a farm Irrigation district does not have the costs that city water does. None of the pipes laid up and down the neighborhood. None of the purifying plants and so on. Farm water comes from a reservoir through canals into the irrigation ditches on the farmer's property. It's cheaper because it's dramatically cheaper water. Well, I get worked up on this subject because there is so much idiocy written in city papers and New York publications about the farmer by people who don't know the first thing about it, and it's no wonder we're killing off the most essential thing in life, a source of food. Well, I got a little worked up on that, but today we have a treat. For about five weeks, Douglas Kelly and Howard Amundsen were in Europe, in England, Scotland, Belgium, and Switzerland. And uh, Dr. Douglas Kelly was lecturing at a number of these points to quite a variety of groups. Now, I'm going to ask him to give us a report on his trip. By the way... Uh, Dr. Kelly, who is a church historian, as I think most of you know, is uh, very much at home in Europe and has deep roots there. His family, the Kellys, came from the Isle of Skye in 1803 to the Carolinas. The Kellys went to the Isle of Skye from Ireland in the 1300s, On his mother's side, his roots go back into continental Europe directly to the grandfather of St. Thomas Aquinas. Moreover, the Kellys of the Carolinas, in many cases, still speak Gaelic. And Douglas has the ability to preach in Gaelic and did on this trip so that on this trip he lectured or spoke in English, Gaelic, and French, and answered questions at one university in German. We are very glad to have you with us today, Douglas, to give us a report on your trip.
1: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure for me to be here. I have derived a great deal of pleasure and information from listening to this Easy Chair series. I never thought I would be speaking on it myself, so this is a reversal. I would like to begin by thanking many who will be listening to this series for their interest in prayers for Howard Amundsen and myself. A letter was sent out to a number of you from Calcedon, outlining the trip we would take, the various sites we would visit, and requesting your prayers, and we have received telephone calls since I returned and letters from different parts of the country by friends of Calcedon stated that they had been remembering us in prayer during this time. We certainly felt greatly uplifted by prayer. We felt the presence of the Holy Spirit as we went to these different countries. I think one remarkable benefit we felt was the total absence of any jet lag or tiredness. We arrived in London about 1 p.m. British time, and I was to give a lecture, and Howard Almondson was also going to answer questions to the Maranatha Student Ministry at about 6.30 that evening, and I'd been afraid we might be tired, but not at all. We felt very fresh and had to speak the next day and the next and had absolutely no jet lag, so we knew that this was to be attributed directly to prayer because I've been to Europe many, many times before and every time I've had at least a certain amount of of exhaustion, but none this time. I'll just give a few words concerning the different groups that we met with In Europe, before I go into that, I perhaps could make one or two general statements. And the first thing I would say is that making this trip at this particular time made me aware of how very similar the cultural, religious, political, economic situation is all over the Western world. In other words, God's people are fighting the same battle in England in Switzerland and France, as well as in the United States. Secondly, I would say, in contradistinction to the last time I was in Europe for any amount of time, which was in 1977, is on this trip I saw a a rather widespread disillusionment with socialism as being the definite positive answer to the problems and the ills of mankind. Naturally, for most of my life when I've been in Europe, I've been in more conservative circles who in general were not socialistic anyway, but I made contact with uh, all sorts of people on this trip and I found that a a number of people who formerly would have been pretty staunchly at least statist if not out and out socialistic in their theories are are beginning to shift a good bit and I I would say I saw quite a lot of this in France in particular a fair amount of it in England as well which was Rather a pleasant surprise. Also, I would make this general remark and then I'll go into specifics. I was, I shall have to say, surprised and at the same time, of course, very encouraged to see the rather deep and broad impact that the work of Calcedon, particularly the books and articles of Dr. Rush Dooney, the impact that this is having all over Western Europe. Some of these people told me, in fact, that they get material from Chalcedon. Either they send the material directly or they digest it and send it indirectly to missionaries in Africa and in the Far East. There was a tremendously warm response Towards what Chalcedon stands for, that is uh, a return to the obedience to the, the whole Word of God. And this really did come as something of a surprise to me having lived some five years in Europe. I was not entirely prepared for this so I was most encouraged to see it and I believe that we have a very wide open door in front of us for future ministry and influence of conservative, Christian, biblical philosophy of life and practice in the years ahead. I think this should be something that we can all give thanks for. Now, I'll make a few remarks and I'll say, if Dr. Rush has any questions he'd like to ask or any remarks he would like to inject, this will certainly be fine. I mentioned earlier that we spoke in London to a group called the Maranatha Student Ministries. This is originally an American organization. They're having quite a broad impact in the United States and Canada. Large numbers of university students are being converted under this ministry, and I think being very responsibly shepherded and taught and built up in the, the whole world. Dr. Rush Dooney in July was in Florida speaking to their leadership, and one of their leaders from London, David Cassidy, attended the meeting at which Dr. Rush Dooney spoke and was very, very impressed, and he was the one who invited me to speak at London had a good group of students, and also a representative from the Festival of Light. This was started by Mrs. Mary Whitehouse, Malcolm Muggeridge, and Lord Longford, an important Catholic leader in England, and others, to do something to stem the tide of the immorality and relativism that has come to Britain in the wake of many many years of atheistic and secular humanism. First the Festival of Light people had large rallies when I was living there in the early 70s they had some very big rallies but now they've gone to a quieter approach in which they are working with the Parliament and doing all they can to get a Christian constituency built up in the land that can stop bad bills. And they told me that the main thing they perhaps have done in the last two years is a negative thing, but a very helpful thing. They have stopped some very bad bills from even getting out of committee in Parliament. They have not very large financial resources, yet they're doing quite a lot. Also, the Festival of Light people told me that there is a growing Christian school movement in England. I had not been aware of this before. I knew a little bit about it in Scotland, but nothing in England. They say this is growing. It's still small, but it is on the move. And, in fact, the forces of secular humanism have tried recently to change the law. The law in England is, is very open to allow parents to teach their own children at home if they so desire. The secularists have tried to change this, but the Festival of Light and other other conservatives have been able to keep this, what I think is a very excellent law, from being changed. So it was good to have contact with these people. Uh, I spoke maybe an hour and a half. They told me to take my time, which I did. And then we had questions and answers for another two hours. Uh, Howard Amundsen was very helpful also in answering questions along certain points that of economy and politics and so forth that are not my my fields of uh, interest and, and background. The next day we were in Horsham, which is a fairly large town in West Sussex, where a young American named David Don has a ministry, who is engaged in some secular work to make a living. Then he uh, preaches for a small group. He also works to encourage other pastors, and he does a great deal of work with children. He takes a lot of material of of Dr. Rush Dooney, and I'm sure he's used some of of Dr. North's material and, and others, and he simplifies it so that children and teenagers can understand Uh, in their own way, many of these important concepts, such as inflation, hard money, uh, gold-backed currency, uh, seven-year debt, and this type of thing, I think that what he is doing there, we might eventually be able to use it here. I think that he has a natural facility for simplifying and at the same time, preserving the essential truth of these great principles. There, we met with a large number of ministers, preachers, and laymen in Horsham, uh, many of whom have been aware of Calcedon and have used the material for some time, and others were new to it, but seemed quite receptive The next day or the day following, we went to the north of England, Huddersfield, up into the Midlands, and there we met with a most remarkable group of of Reformed Christians, Douglas Brown, Tom DeLacy, and uh, a number of other very, very committed men and women, very intelligent, very sensitive, very much aware of what I would call the Signs of the time, these people are planning to, to start a church pretty soon, and also they hope to have an outreach in every possible way to spread the ideas that they have been encouraged to receive through the, the Chalcedon material. One of the group, Mr. Douglas Brown, who is uh, a businessman, Some years ago, when he was going on vacation, happened to pick up two of Dr. Rushton's books. I cannot remember which two they were, but he said he read these books on vacation and they totally revolutionized his entire thinking, his outlook. He was already a Christian and and a conservative Christian, but it just completely opened up uh, a new world to him and he began to understand why society was breaking down in what was wrong in school and what was wrong in the government. And so he began reaching out to others and and spreading this material. And over the years, they've been meeting and discussing. And I think they've also probably received tapes, books, the cow food and reports. And I don't know that I've ever seen a group that was any better informed, if as well informed, as this group in Huddersfield. It was an interesting thing to me because you had people there who were honors graduates of Cambridge. Uh, one man, I think, an uh, honors graduate in both mathematics and physics, who's uh, a professor in, in a high school. We had businessmen. We had ministerial students. We had Anglicans, Baptists, Presbyterians we had one very remarkable and very impressive man who is a gardener who's worked in a park all his life gardening. But I've never met a man who was so well-read, he's read all of Dulya all of Van Til, all of Rush plus many, many other theologians and philosophers He's far more widely read in those fields than I am, yet a very humble man with it, but the depth and the breadth of understanding he has is really most remarkable and he made a remark and others also echoed it that I think might be of encouragement to many of you, and I'll pass it on. In my speech, which I gave gave two different speeches there at Huddersfield. The first one I mentioned something about Puritanism and that in America we have received our very finest institutions from the English and the Scottish Puritans. And he responded some time later that though we in America had received our major institutions from Britain, now they in Britain, at least the conservative Christians, were looking to America and they felt that they were receiving the finest spiritual, governmental, educational, and cultural material from the American Christians and especially from Chalcedon uh, as from anywhere else in the world so that now the shoe was on the other foot. So I found this most interesting. We felt that that was a very, very uh, great group of people and they want to get in contact with Chuck Wagner to help distribute tapes and books even more widely in Great Britain, and I'm sure this will be going on in the future. We were then in Scotland. I will not give too many details about that. We made, I think, some fruitful contacts both in university circles and in church circles, uh, which are interested in what is going on in the United States and in Chalcedon. I think we have some channels open that will, will bear fruit in years to come. We were in Edinburgh where we heard Reverend James Phillip preach, and later we were in Aberdeen where we heard Reverend William Still preach in his great church, and at his church I gave a report on my work here, which we believe was well-received. I enjoyed being in the Isle of the Sky, where I have many cousins. And As Dr. Rushton mentioned, there for a few days we were speaking Gaelic most of the time, and I knew I was there because on the last night that I was there, I dreamed all night in Gaelic. <laughs> I knew I had left, though, because the next night I was dreaming in English.
0: <laughs> but it was
1: uh, it was very enjoyable. Howard Almondson, who was with me, was most amazed. He said... He had never drunk so many cups of tea nor been to so many prayer meetings in his life. If he had in sky, <laughs> that he believed all my people did was drink tea and go to prayer meetings. And frankly, I can think of worse things. <laughs> well, we went across to Belgium to the uh, great Catholic University of Louvain, that was split in 1968 into two universities: the Flemish-speaking university at the old. Place, Leuven, Leuven, and the new one, Louvain-la-Neuve, and we were at Louvain-la-Neuve most of the time, though we spent one day at Leuven, a conference of the philosophy for the, the society for the study of medieval philosophy. And there I made many helpful contacts. I've been in this organization for many years and was at their last conference at Bonn. What I found very exciting about this conference, among other things, was I heard some papers dealing with church-state relations in the Middle Ages, which, for me, shed some very important light on what is happening now in our country, and I was able to talk with some of these scholars, one Dominican scholar, Father Murray, and also a British lady who teaches at Exeter University, Janet Coleman. I was able to pick their brains a little bit and to get some most helpful bibliography for some research I want to do defending the rights of Christian schools and churches in our country. So, if I had only gotten back from the trip, I would say it was, it was well worth it. I gave a speech one day, a paper on Irenaeus of Lyon, his view of the status and redemption of man. And this seemed to have been well-received. We had a great deal of interesting discussion and were able to get into Pauline theology and the whole matter of atonement and salvation and, and the victory of Christ uh, in the human race and in space and time. And as uh, Dr. Rushton indicated, some, a number of Germans were there and asked if they could pose a question in German, which I said, yes. They asked a question in German, I answered in English, and then they were waiting at the door and said, give us the answer in German. We didn't get the point. So then I gave them the answer as best I could in German, but we hopefully got the point across. And they were very, very friendly and and very, very responsive indeed. We then went to Switzerland. We were at the Calvin Congress in Geneva for some days. This Congress was largely dealing with historical matters of Calvin's influence in Switzerland. You might be interested to hear at this point an impression that Howard Amundsen and I both had on this trip, not only in Switzerland, but throughout Europe, and that is we really saw very few American tourists, comparatively speaking, I was in Europe in both the 60s and the 70s for some years, and at that time one saw a large number of Americans, indeed the majority of tourists were Americans at that stage, but not anymore. While we were in Great Britain, a tremendous number of Germans, a somewhat smaller number of Italians and French, though though a sizable number large number of Japanese, and, and down at the bottom, in numbers, I mean, were the Americans. The same thing was true on the continent. Indeed, I would say that the, the majority of, of tourists we saw in Switzerland were Germans and Japanese in the Chateau of Chillon that Jean-Marc Bertout took us to visit one day the majority of people who were visiting were Japanese and the tours were being given in Japanese. And this says something about the economy of the world that the Japanese have a very vibrant economy. I know they're having problems in in West Germany and yet they have a vibrant economy and, and this is, is seen in the fact that you see so many more of, of those people traveling about and, and comparatively so few Americans compared to 20 years ago. So that was an interesting observation that uh, one could not help but note. Also, I would say this, speaking on the sort of the everyday level, we found that prices are considerably higher in Europe than in the United States, both in the matter of hotels and food, and especially we found expensive, the price of public transport. Uh, This is much, much more expensive than it is presently in America. I think Americans don't know how well off they are at the cheapness of the price of food. Dr. Rushton was speaking earlier about this farm problem, and that's very close to me since I'm from a farming area, and the American people just aren't aware of how cheap food is in the sense of what a small percentage of our salary goes into food as compared, let us say, with uh, a typical middle-class French family, German or even an English family. We enjoyed Geneva, and then after we were in Geneva, we went to Lausanne. We'd been invited there through a very close friend of Chalcedon, Jean-Marc Bertou, who is the head of Association Vaudoise de Parents Chrétiens, uh, Vaudois Association of Christian Parents. It's a group which was formed of both Catholics and Protestants who were concerned about the trend towards relativism and liberalism and nihilism in the schools of their area, and they decided to do something, and they realized that if they were going to do something about the school, they really had to deal with this whole question of the basic philosophy of life, which is either secular humanism or Christianity and this group is having a very real impact not only in stopping some rather bad things from happening in the schools which they have been able to do but also they've been having an impact on the whole political scene in very different areas. Indeed I know that Jean-Marc Bertoult took some of the ideas of Dr. Rush Dooney from his book The Philosophy of the Christian Curriculum, and they successfully used some of these ideas to influence legislation on the highest levels there in Switzerland. So this is a group that is in the, the middle of the fray very well balanced, very gracious people. As I say, probably about equally made up of of Catholic and Protestant, all of whom believe in, in the Word of God and are committed to making an impact on this generation and taking a stand whatever the cost uh, for their Master. Obviously, there are many who who resent them and who do not like them, and yet they also have a real respect. The We met the pastor and the assistant pastor of the large cathedral in Lausanne, and it was very clear from meeting them, just on a chance meeting we ran into them, that they have a lot of respect for Jean-Marc Bertou and what his group is doing. On the Friday night... I spoke to this group, perhaps for an hour, and then we probably discussed for another hour, answered questions. I spoke to them on the current situation of Christian Reconstruction in the United States of America. I had discussed this matter pretty fully with uh, Dr. Rush Dooney before I left the country, and I had the information that... That he has as well as what I've been able to pick up over the last year and the people there were most interested and most receptive and indeed I think very astonished at what is going on in this country particularly I was laying some stress on the Christian school movement and the attacks on the Christian school movement of of many in the governmental bureaucracy and what they kept saying to us was we're, we're just so encouraged to hear it and we're so surprised that the media never let any of this whatsoever slip through. We told them about Brother Roloff in Texas and the tremendous work of rehabilitation and regeneration that his orphanage homes and his, his homes for drunks and prostitutes and runaways, the great work that he's done, yet he's been in prison twice if not three times and court cases are now pending against him and they were just amazed at how the media has kept any of this from from getting to Europe but they were just really praising the Lord to hear what God is doing in, in welfare work and education and also we were able to share with them what the Lord is doing in many black ministries And they were very happy to hear this. And indeed, the speech that I gave uh, will be published. They've already sent it out in English, and then they're going to make it into a booklet in French. And they said they'll be sending it very widely all over Europe and into Africa because they feel that Christians in that country need to know what's happening here, which is filtered out by the humanistic media. They believe Christians will be greatly encouraged to take a stand in Europe if they know of what is going on over here. Indeed, we, there really seemed to be a presence of the Holy Spirit on the Friday night, and a number of people were in tears during the meeting, so we couldn't doubt that God was was getting his message across. And though of course, it was in all in French all the time we were at Lausanne. That really seemed not to present the slightest difficulty in communicating the message, the one man said to Jean-Marc Bertou that within three or four minutes he totally forgot about the accent because he was so caught up in the content of, of what God was doing. And their questions were very, very much to the point and showed they had, they had gotten the message. On the Saturday, we met with a group of leaders from many parts of Switzerland from Geneva and Basel in particular, as well as from Lausanne. We had some ladies who were presidents of the pro-life groups in Geneva. We had a high school teacher who's head of a pro-moral organization in Basel, and many others, both Catholic and Protestant of various denominations, who were there to learn all they could to encourage and help them in the struggle that they are waging for Christianity as against humanism in Swiss society. As I say, we discussed for really over three hours all of these messages were taped. And these people seemed so excited to go into what God is doing on this side of the water I was able to share with them some of the recent court decisions and one lady asked me to write it up and send it back. She's going to be on national television in Geneva in a week and she wanted to share this with uh, the nation of Switzerland, some of the things that have happened here. So we've been given very wide coverage for these Christian ideas for which we're grateful. On the Sunday morning, I was to preach at Uh, a large church Action Biblique in Lausanne whose pastor is Monsieur Dubois very fine uh, Swiss French minister who was a number of years uh, missionary I think maybe in Portugal and Brazil I'm not certain but an outstanding preacher I had some fear and trepidation at the thought of, of preaching in French and yet again the Lord very wonderfully undertook in this matter and I perhaps preached 40 or 50 minutes on Psalm 2 and the, thing, the audience seemed to be very attentive and there was a real sense of the Lord's presence and I believe the message was, was communicated by God himself and I'd say three or four hundred were there and I spoke to all of them at the door and I've never had so many people to say well my eyes have been opened by this, and seemed most encouraged by what was said and by the fact that we were there. In fact, one man said, well, you've already won the hearts of the people if an American will bother to speak French, so you had them on your side to start with from that, so um I was glad to know that. I'd certainly like to put in a good word for Jean-Marc Berthou, who, as I say, arranged our... Our itinerary in Lausanne, he is an extremely well-informed, dedicated uh, Christian scholar. He has to work at the post office to make a living for his family. He has a lovely wife, a daughter of missionaries, and they have five nice children. We, Howard Amundsen and I stayed in their home. Lovely Christian people, but he has to work full time and then all this other work he does on top of that on his own time. I don't see how he does all he does. If any of you are ever, uh, feel inclined to help that organization financially, you would certainly be putting your money in, in God's work to do so. I might mention this about Jean-Marc Bertoux. Jean-Marc Bertoux is extremely well educated. He's a real philosopher, philosopher of, of the Christian religion, religious philosopher, theologian. His brother is one of the leading professors at the conservative seminary at Aix-en-Provence, Pierre Bertoux. Comes from a very intellectual family. Jean-Marc has written some some important articles and books, some of which we here at Calcedon hope we will be able to translate into English and, and to publish. He's done some important work on some of the, the relationships, very positive relationships between certain aspects of the modern thomist the religious philosophy and the thought of Fantille, Dujuvird, Rushduni, and others. And yet the interesting thing about Jean-Marc Bertou is he has stepped outside the academy, that is, he could certainly find a job in a, in a seminary or university or college or whatever, he, he's that caliber of man. But he stepped outside the academic world in order to apply these great Christian principles to everyday life, to schools, to government, to business. And he is having, on a very shoestring financial support, he's having a great impact. And it's interesting to note that there's a little bit of an analogy between what he's doing sort of outside the academic world, though in one sense a part of it intellectually, and what Calcedon is doing also to a degree outside the academic world in order to concentrate perhaps not so much on theoretical subjects but on application to life. And in both cases, we believe that maybe this this is a trend that many Christian thinkers will be following in years to come. After we were in Lausanne, we took the train and then a bus up to Dr. Francis Schaeffer's place, La Brie, which is in a beautiful little village high in the Alps called Waymo. Dr. and Mrs. Schaefer were leaving town within about 10 minutes of the time we arrived, so unfortunately we didn't get to spend time with them, but we did spend uh, one very enjoyable evening with Dr. Schaefer's main research assistant who lives in the Schaefer home, Uh, James Ingram, and Ingram's wife is the secretary for the Shapers. Uh, James Ingram was doing a PhD in economics at Queen's University in Canada, and economic questions began to press in on him. He was not a Christian at the time. He'd come from a liberal background. And he, he got so exercised about these questions, he was given Keynesianism and he knew that it, it was not providing answers somewhere he got hold of a Bible started reading and looking up what the Bible said about economics and he, he became converted he did not finish his PhD at, at that time still hasn't I don't know whether he, he will or he won't but he began reading very widely for answers because he saw what a absolutely crucial and central thing economics is and so now he's working there with the shapers and Howard Amundsen in particular wanted to talk to him and I did as well about a a project that to be a meeting at Wheaton College next summer that Howard Amundsen and I hope we can perhaps go to and, and present a paper from the the aspect of, of biblical law on economics we suspect some of the other papers will tend towards perhaps uh, mild forms of, of liberation theology or at least statism, we, we can't be sure, and talking to Mr. Ingram was very helpful to us in uh, dealing with some of the potential approaches that we could make. We then went to Paris where we have some very good friends and stayed with them for about two days and... Caught the plane home. And all in all, we can certainly say with the psalmist, and this is what we would leave with you, the Lord hath done great things for us, whereof we are glad. Thank you very much. Thank for your prayers and support. Thank you for your support of Chalcedon. And I would just like to assure you that perhaps far more than you know, uh, the support and the prayers that you give to Chalcedon These are having a very, very deep impact for salvation, for regeneration, for restoration all across the Western world on a very broad spectrum. Thank you very much.
0: Uh, Douglas, you mentioned uh, Jean-Marc's scholarship You brought back a paper of his in the area of uh, some current philosophy. Would you like to comment on that and on the possibility of its publication, some of the material you're reading of his that you'd like to see translated, the subject and content?
1: The particular paper that Jean-Marc sent me was on recent French-Roman Catholic thinking on apologetics. He delivered this paper at a Calvinist conference in, I believe, Amsterdam or somewhere in Holland. A lot of people who are interested in the philosophy of Dr. Dujuvierd were there, and, and others, I'm sure both uh, Roman Catholic and, and Protestant. But he particularly presented important aspects of the thought of Father Brutberger and Abbé Georges de and one or two other um, important uh, Thomas thinkers in France, and he brings out the point that that these men, in in much of their profound thought, have uh, been been deeply influenced by by the movement of scripture itself, and that some of the approach they're taking is surprisingly like what um, Dulevered and to a degree Van Til have said about the matter of of, uh, spheres that there's a there's a freedom in the word of God in which the various areas of thought and life are to be influenced and controlled directly by the word of God itself rather than by uh, one sphere imposing itself on another sphere. And he has has gone into the thought of Father Brookberger and that. and while obviously there are, of course, differences and considerable differences from some of the Calvinistic thinking, yet there are profound Similarities that need to be examined, and I think he believes, and from what I've picked up from reading his material and some other material, I would believe as well that uh, part of the way forward might come in some of the similarities that, that are being pointed out. And I hope that in the Journal of Christian Reconstruction, in a, a future issue, we can reprint this paper of his on recent. French Roman Catholic thinking on apologetics, because it has a great deal of of profound, and yet while it's profound, also very clear, very straightforward material that will be of help, I think, to to, uh, Christians and philosophers across the country. Also, I'm reading a work of his in French, which I'm of a mind to translate into English and see if we could perhaps publish as a small book or booklet or however you may feel led on the question of power in the Christian life and I guess by power he would mean authority or 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 law or right or something along these lines who's dealing with, with the whole matter of, of sovereignty really and of, of relationships of uh, of God and man of church and state of, of husband and wife and parents and, and school, school and parents, school and government, um, army, police. It, it's a very uh, wide-ranging thing, yet very clear, logical, uh, biblical, and helpful, and I think that in our time of, of confusion when, when statism is assumed to be the answer to our problems even by many, many Christians, that a study like Jean-Marc berthou's on the legitimate place of authority is very much needed. Well, these are some of the things that we have found to be helpful in berthou's writings, and we will let you know as some of this becomes available for you in English.
0: One of the interesting things that is happening, I think Jean-Marc has Uh, touched upon in his paper, which I thoroughly enjoyed reading. A great many uh, Christian scholars of varying traditions are facing the common challenge of humanism by going back to the roots and to the foundations. And the results are beginning to be very important I think we're going to see a great deal more scholarship along those lines in the years ahead. One of the things that interests me, by the way, we have a scholar, a Spanish scholar on our mailing list, whose name escapes me at the moment, who is working on a study of the last and unfinished work of Thomas Aquinas, a study of Romans. And... His thesis is that uh, Aquinas in that unfinished study was making a transition from some of his positions held previously and that the work, in effect, anticipated most of what Luther had to say. That had he finished it and it had become published, the history of the West might have been uh, dramatically different. That's something to look forward to seeing someday. But I've since learned that one or two others have become aware of this fact in Aquinas. And it is interesting that there suddenly is this interest in the uh, same fundamental uh, points, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of authority, the place of the state, in the providence of God and the limited role of the state, that the same questions in various parts of the world are being raised and similar answers being given by Christian thinkers. It does indicate that we're seeing a tremendous change on the entire uh, Christian front. Yes, I
1: think this is true. I remember the... Devotional writer A.W. Pink said something in one of his books I read many years ago that has stuck in my mind. He said, when the Holy Spirit works, he works at both ends of the line. And I think this is profoundly true that when a a movement is coming from God, he's working in all sorts of places, and you get together and begin comparing notes, and you see a, a similarity, you see what we might call a divine strategy. Mm-hmm. taking place that could not have been orchestrated by any man this is what I was saying in some of my speeches in England and in Switzerland that as we have discussed we feel it's happening in the United States that uh, God is leading Christians in our country to raise up alternative institutions to the state mm-hmm. in Christian education and in, in uh, caring for human persons and welfare and in other ways there's no one person that has gone around and, and told all these different sorts of groups to do it. They, they wouldn't have listened anyway but God has has led Christians from very different sorts of backgrounds and conservatives to start founding institutions that are a viable alternative to those controlled by the human estate so, so in that way God is working and and in the way both among Catholics and Protestants, leading us back to some of the roots that undoubtedly will point the way ahead for us in the right ideas and intellectual healing. This has to be of God. No no one person could have done this. No institution could have done it. The the academy didn't do it. Who did it? The Lord.
0: Yes. Well, our time is up, so we... We'll have to terminate this, but one last comment. This is Wednesday, and since Monday I've had three calls from attorneys in different parts of the country and one from a legislator. I had no previous contact with any of them. But all of them were showing a like theological concern, raising the same kind of fundamental questions. So very definitely the Holy Spirit is at work in different areas, different communions, different callings. Well, it's been good to have this time with you and a delight for me and I know for you to hear about the work in Europe and Douglas's most successful uh, trip to Europe. We'll be with you again very soon, and we do enjoy our time together very much. Thank you for listening.